Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, my name is Jess Phillips, and this is yours sincerely. I've always been a prolific letter writer, both the good and bad kind, and know the power of putting words on paper. So in this podcast, I want to give my guests a chance to celebrate three people that mean the world to them. Someone they love, someone who's no longer around, and someone who doesn't realise how significant a role they've played in their lives. And when we've heard more about each person, they'll reveal how they would sign off each letter. Paddy O'Connell is a BBC television and radio presenter. He presents BBC Radio 4's Broadcasting House programme and their PM programme. He has worked as a North America business correspondent and Wall Street anchor and is also a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts. And today I'm excited to talk to him about the letters he would send to three people who mean the world to him. Hello, Paddy. How are you? How is things? Well, I'm very cold because I refuse to turn my boiler on. Have you not turned it on at all yet? I have, but I'm very I'm getting stricter and stricter about it because I mean the bill my bill's doubled although it's impossible to tell you need a degree to work out your energy bill. I mean honestly, who can actually tell what their energy? It's like pensions. There's only 3 people in the entire country who actually can understand what pensions is and no matter how many times somebody will say to me you need to buy an annuity and then try and explain that to me I have still got no idea what that actually means it should be renamed cake and cakey tea (laughs) that would be much better because I mean there are many things that are sent to baffle us energy bills is one of them pensions there's loads of things that I don't understand and then have to kilowatt talk. Kilowatt hours. Kilowatt hours, don't know what that is. But I have got my heating on, I'm, I'm not going to lie. It's been on for about a month, so... <laughs> Good for you. In Parliament, there's no heating at all at the moment. I don't know when it comes on, I think maybe around now, but in Parliament it is absolutely freezing currently. But I'm not there, I'm at home, so that's all right. So this podcast is all about writing letters. And Are you much of a letter writer or were you much of a letter writer before technology took over? I know your podcast and I'm annoyed that you've waited so long to issue an invitation to me. And con- <laughs> congratulations on the love you're getting for it. I'm a massive letter writer and reader and I always have been. Oh, that is great. I love it when people are still enthusiastic and you haven't gone to voice notes. This is my current bugbear is people who use voice notes instead of writing letters. And people do that instead of texting. Texting is the only way to communicate other than letters. It never, I never, I can't stand the phone. But I mean, I had a lifelong love of letters Partly because my parents lived abroad. I was sent to a boarding school at the age of seven, can you believe? So 
I communicated on a piece of tissue paper with them, which was known as airmail. And I, if you said that to anyone now, they'd say, do you mean email? You can't email. I'm going, no, airmail. That weird blue paper. You don't see it anymore, do you, at all? That w- And it was, like, very, very thin. Why was that? Why was airmail like that? Well, I can answer that. OK, good, I want to know. Because it was less heavy. So if you bought your old Basildon Bond, which weighed as much as your shoe... If you wrote on a bit of tissue paper, such as your granny might have put her her valuables in, it was, you know, a tenth of the weight. You could only write on one side, obviously, and also you folded it up, didn't you, to, and then sealed the edges? Am I imagining that? No, that's certainly how I remember it. And, I mean, that was the 70s, So I was, and then I was educated at uni, school and university before the internet, so I did loads of my growing up in letters. I received Valentine's cards, I love letters... I wrote to people, I wrote to the Times, I read the Henry Root letters, I wrote to the Duchess of Windsor when she was alive and I I was doing a school project. Dear Duchess, I'm doing a project on Edward VIII. Will you speak to me? Did she respond? Her secretary did, on airmail paper. Oh, my gosh, how brilliant. She responded, but did she say, no, I'm not going to let you interview me about Edward VIII? She did, although she said she was very grateful for my interest. I'm sure she was very, very grateful for your interest. I have to write how grateful I am for people's interest quite a lot, but I am deeply grateful for all of that interest, so I'm sure she was. Where did your parents live then? Well, at that time they lived in Iran, of all places, can you imagine, when I was seven. But they all came to a catastrophic halt when my dad died there when I was 11. So obviously life changed completely, although not letters we the letter writing habit remained and in fact my mum who's only just died as we've been going through her possessions she kept all the letters so that all the ones I wrote to her from the age of seven we've just found in her loft oh how lovely that is lovely why were they living in Iran so my dad had a job as an engineer just before the fall of the Shah so I suppose we would be seen as nasty imperialist people but uh, it was a job really for my dad but it was all very too stressful for him and he died of a heart attack at about the age I am now. And did your mum stay in Iran then or did she come home? No she flew back with his body in a metal box in the plane and just was very very strong really how she did it I don't know but she was only about 51 but Inevitably, as I grew up, most of my treasured possessions were letters from my dad because, curiously, that he, he had written a lot probably once a week. I think he did write to us once a week. So though I had loads of letters and I used to look at them and wonder about him as I grew up. Yeah, that's a, they're nice mementos to have. Well, I lost my mum and because I, I lived with her and even when I was at university, email and mobile phones did exist then. So I, I don't really have that much that she had written down to me. And I think that there is, I sometimes read the email she said to me, which are largely really mundane things about passwords for her different accounts and things, which really you shouldn't be sending in an email, but there we go. But yeah, it's nice to have those like physical mementos and also the writing matters people's hand actually having written it makes it much more poignant I think it does I I was obsessed by my both my parents writing which was very neat and well formed my dad would end every letter stay merry and bright was his advice and he would end every letter like that 
And I think in the end, what I did as a teenager was I, I'd kind of got rid of most of the letters, but I used to, I kept that phrase, stay merry and bright. I kept it with me in a sort of wallet for a long time. I, I think I've still got it, but I don't carry it around anymore like a talisman. But I agree with you completely. The writing is your character. And especially as my writing has deteriorated, much like my character has, as I've got older. <laughs> <laughs> They've deteriorated at the same rate. Yeah, my writing is absolutely dreadful now. I worry about my kids actually not having the art of handwriting at all because they largely do much of their schoolwork is done online, they're typing. But we still we still in primary schools teach people handwriting rather than like touch typing. But yeah, the, there is definitely the art of hand sometimes I get letters. Amazingly beautiful script that people have done in calligraphy. I'm not as pessimistic about life as I was. And I think there's this big thing for mindfulness at the moment. And you meet adults who like colouring things in and building Lego. I mean, the thing about Lego is you always step on a piece barefooted and nearly die. But that's never said on the box. You know, don't step on it. Yeah, caution. <laughs> that's what you should do. Caution, this will definitely make you swear. <laughs> I make quite a lot of Lego, actually. I find it a very mindful thing to do. Because I've got, well, I've got two sons and they have a lot of Lego. And I find that just sitting and watching the telly and building... But all I build is... I mean, my son's now almost too old to play with Lego. My little, my youngest one is 13 and he still will do some of the kits. But I just build the exact same thing that I built when I was a little girl. And it's dreadfully sort of gendered. I just like make a nice little house with a nice little garden. But like on the base of a spaceship, because that's the bases that we had when I was a child. Like you had to build your little house on the moon. But yeah, that's, I just build little houses, just very sort of chocolate box cottages. And I find that a sort of mindful thing to do. So I am one of those adults. I love that I found that out about you because a lot is known about you. And I suppose the link is that to mindfulness is that what would be wrong if you were 15 when you had your first crush on someone and you wrote them a letter, or wrote them a card? You know, what wouldn't be wrong or spooky, would it? People at this time of year, people do write, don't they? Because people send Christmas cards still. The Christmas card remains although people still send those e ones e christmas cards you have to press on the thing and it's sort of like a reindeer will run across your screen but people do still write um uh letters and stuff at christmas there's still sort of like a die hard contingent of my dad's friends who will send like you know those round robin letters that are <laughs> that are like susie's been amazing at ballet and things like that yeah <laughs> but now because my dad's 80 like, it's just people dying. It's just like Alan finally left us, uh, is, what, is what those letters now say. But Christmas is a letter-writing time, I think. I grew up with Not the Nine O'Clock News and they had a sketch about old people lamenting the people who were dying. And it would be Laurence Olivier talking to John Gilgood, saying, what's the time? And John Gilgood would go, oh, it's gone nine. And Larry Olivier would say, nine gone, dear old nine <laughs> gone, another one gone. It is a bit like that. It is, yeah. That's definitely attend more funerals as you get older. So I've asked you to think about three different letters that you would write to three different people. Some people have played 
fast and loose with this format and, and sent one letter to 17 people because they couldn't decide. It's not like Desert Island Discs. I'm not very strict. I might start getting stricter. But I've asked you to prepare three different letters. So the first one would be to the person who means the world to you. So who would you send that letter to? Well, I love your podcast and I thought to play along fairly with it, I would pick one. I am surrounded by people who really do look after me. And so I, it's true, I've got lots of people, but anyway, I'm going to pick a friend of mine who I'm going to call Liz, which actually isn't her name, but only because I don't, I don't want to inadvertently give away things about her life without asking her. But she she and her family and her husband came into my life when I lived and worked in Essex. We hadn't had an old connection, but we re-found ourselves at the age of about 23, 24, something like that. And she had this amazing home. She cooked all the time and I basically lived in their house you know I became a godfather to her sons and we had so much fun food wine laughter and so she's kind of the person who means the world to me because in many ways she just created like a second home it's interesting you with your lego she built a sort of lego home for me at 20 it was so much fun she was adopted and had an, an extraordinary story, really. But there was a man who used to go to the school. It turned out to be her dad, her biological dad. But years later, her mum got back with that man. So the story of her life is amazing. And I've always gravitated to people with kind of disrupted childhoods, I, I, I think. And Sue was just like this fabulous home. She never had any questions for me. It was, it was a fabulous, foodie, glorious home. She's a very strong woman and she had some horrible times in her life, but she was absolutely, you know, so, so deep. And, and it, she was she and her husband were the first people I came out to very late as gay, sort of like I was nearly 90 when I came out as gay. <laughs> and it was in this home where there was just norm food and, and uh, fun. Do you think that, um, like, going to boarding school made you, like, you know, sort of want to gravitate towards a sort of, like, settled home? I think when I was considering your letters, I found that that has been a theme, that actually I was very curious to know what did a marriage look like? Uh, because obviously... I, yeah, you wouldn't have grown up with it, yeah, really. Yeah, what, what do two people who live together do, you know? And what happens if you don't get on? And what do you eat? And... Do you, do you have to sleep in the same bed as them? And what happens in the bathroom? And I was endlessly curious about how did adults cohabit, you know, and what, what did what did it mean? You know, do you share clothes? Can I wear your nightie if my pyjamas are dirty? <laughs> well, I think this about same-sex relationships, though. I think, does everybody just wear everybody else's clothes? <laughs> <laughs> that seems like a massive convenience to me. Like, if I had another a woman partner who's, like, the same size and build as me, unlike my husband, who's not the same size and build as me, then, then of course, we would share each other's clothes. Yeah, I mean, I, I've always loved women. I mean, I, I, although, obviously, I, I'm, I've just said to you that I'm gay, I, many of my friends are, are women, and I love women in pyjamas. I can't really explain why. I just think that women should wear pyjamas more because they look fabulous. You have sort of kindred with my husband who will say to me, the best, the most attractive thing is when you wear pyjamas. It's just like you just look relaxed. You look like comfy and 
you look like, I don't know, like you belong here and this is where you belong and we're cosy and comfy. And yeah, he, you know, I could get dressed up and put on a fancy frock and big earrings and loads of makeup and actually just wants me to just put on like a scraggy vest and a pair of uh, baggy pyjama bottoms. I love that because, I mean, I love the song, The Way You Look Tonight and... I think we know that you can really love someone who you've known a long time because they just captured themselves. They've just brushed their hair, they've put on an old something. But on the other hand, I do love that shabby kind of or normality of it. So a, a lot of a lot of you've made me think a lot about the sort of younger me, and I think I was inadvertently curious to know about what was a conventional home life. That, what was it? What was it like? And it's curious because Liz, my friend, who I'm describing, years later, just a couple of years ago, her daughter married a woman, and so it was it was a gloriously happy event. But I I was able to reflect on sort of 25 years of our friendship, and I thought, you know, your instinct was to give me space. And you've obviously mothered this person in the same way. I mean, obviously, there's a dad involved who's a great friend of mine. So you've both parented this person in the same way. But it was, a, in terms of having a lifelong friend who means the world to you, what a happy summer's day it was to, to be there. I felt young again. Oh, that's so lovely. And do you think that Liz has any idea how much she means to you? Do you tell her? I think she's such a sort of straightforward person. She runs a cafe. She's a, she just is always doing things. I saw her just two weeks ago. I see her a lot. And I think she. we know we mean a lot to each other, and we do say it. But I think to be singled out like this on your podcast, she would be astonished and embarrassed and pleased that I've <laughs> changed her name. <laughs> I, I think that people are... To, people find it much easier to take criticism than compliment just because you sort of like you can be prepared for it and you can act indignant but it's quite hard to uh, have people say nice things about you it's like when anyone does like a potted biography of you when they introduce you it always makes it sound like I had no downtime and I did 10 amazing things in the space of a minute and I find it really deeply uncomfortable when you have to sit through it yeah I think that we don't go around as British people, I think, and maybe this is universal, I don't know, it's just saying how much we all mean to each other. No, you, no, you're right. I love this because it, years later I went to live in the States, which incidentally is also pre-internet, and therefore I communicated in my late 20s by letter as well. But Americans will say, Jess, you look fabulous. <laughs> look at you in that. I don't know if they mean it. Joan Rivers said, if you can fake sincerity, you're made. And inevitably, I used to believe it. People used to say, oh, my God, look at your tie. I mean, the Americans, that kind of bright blue sky optimism, I really respond to that. I'm really a sucker for that. You think that they really thought that tie, that is the best tie I've ever seen. I think what they bought into, especially in New York where I lived, was we can get through this together by boosting each other because it was always in friends joey didn't share did he and it's like you can get through this easier if you do have a good time so why don't we have a good time the alternative is to say oh everyone hates me I, i'm fat everyone's lost I, I haven't got any friends uh, my hair's dreadful or you can just say do you know i saw this fabulous thing today like this in the window it's a, it's a picture and i i did surround myself by loads of people who just kind of got on with it that is, you're, you're absolutely right. When I was last in New York, there was, uh, I'm just always baffled by A, how loud they are and like how they will speak across four lines of traffic and be like, oh, hi, how are 
are you? It's great to see you. And it's like he's miles away from you. You can't see him at all. And like we're all now privy to your conversation, which you're now having. How's your wife? Oh, she's fabulous. Like, and they're, they're quite bold, New Yorkers. But there's something utterly charming about how upbeat people are. I mean, the, the American will say, you must come round. And they mean you must come round. And the British person will say you must come round. They mean if I see you on my street, I'm moving house. <laughs> that is so true. When uh, my husband, I remember one time we we're in like our local corner shop and we saw somebody we'd used to live with and we haven't seen him for years and we haven't really kept in touch with him. And he sort of closed the conversation in that manner that you have to do, where you say, oh, we, we must get together. And my husband just said, should we face the fact that we're not going <laughs> to? The last thing a friend of mine said is he left my house 10 years ago. We'll see you soon. And that was the, I haven't seen him since. I think I'd offended him over dinner. And then there's that, my own brother who I adore and should really be on the means to world to you list. I asked him, he has a great habit of saying, that sounds very nice. So I said, would you like to come and see, as I did recently, the mousetrap? We should support it. We live in London. It's, it was the first to reopen. He said, that sounds lovely. And I thought... That actually means, no, it's three words that mean push off with your dreadful play, love. Yeah, absolutely. My husband does not have this affliction and always just very embarrassingly says what he actually thinks. And he's just not rote learned the acceptable means of communication. I don't take him to any events. <laughs> but um, I wonder <laughs> if there's a link, though, because inevitably if you sit down and write a letter, unless you're writing a comic letter, which some of my friends do, I mean, you aren't really going to waste time saying what you don't mean, I don't think. Maybe that's the point. Maybe maybe the point of your podcast is if you're going to go to the trouble of writing the bloody thing, it would be really strange to not say what you meant. It would be really weird to do that. Wouldn't it be nice if we did that and not mean it at all? Because you just couldn't be bothered to actually write those words. Yeah, that's true. It's sort of the most honest and truthful forms of communication. I've never written in a letter, like, meaningless platitudes. Mostly, if you're writing to your loved ones, you do just say what you think. And often people find that if they actually have to have, like, an intervention with somebody or, like, have a moment where they tell their families that something has happened or something is going to happen, they will write it in letter form, that people will find that, actually, I can write you a letter and tell you what went wrong in a way that I can't if I have to sit in front of you. So it's the ultimate sort of honesty in writing down your feelings. Even if you don't necessarily send that letter, people will write things down so that they can form their thoughts in their heads about difficult things. Mm. I've only hit on that talking to you because I, I hadn't connected the superficiality of the spoken word, which is kind of my business, with the intentionality of the written word, which is not. And it's like, I feel someone who's full of platitudes and, and sort of puffery, but not when I write it down. It's definitely true. If I've written a lot down and it's a much better side of myself than the constant blabbing. No, but I've got to say, I think there's sort of the slight and constant element of sarcasm in your broadcasting I find to be utterly charming. Imposter syndrome. <laughs> it's just like, are there, is there a man with a giant shepherd's crook going to come in and say, that's it, love, you've had it. It went on much too long, get out. <laughs> I was once trying to get into Television Centre, my pass had expired, and Jeremy Paxman was behind me at the turnstile, and he went, mm, wrong shoes. <laughs> Which I thought was very funny, you know, because it was very brutal. My contract had expired, so they just switched off my electronic existence, so I couldn't get in. Paxman went, wrong shoes. <laughs> 
<laughs> I saw him recently, Jeremy Paxman, and uh, he was being very, very, very blunt with me. Uh, I think it had just been like the party conference season and somebody had said to him, oh, do you, do, you, do you miss going to that sort of thing? And he was just literally like, no, I fucking don't. <laughs> it's just like, no, it's the worst place with the worst people. I was like that. Great. He, yeah, I saw him in Windsor when Harry married Meghan. And we were both covering it. And and I said, um, oh, do you like doing royal events? He said, are you mad? <laughs> are you think, are you mad? I'm being paid. <laughs> just, uh, just oh, a, I mean, he's nice. like your husband. He's, uh, Jeremy Paxman is very like my husband, except that my husband didn't ever learn how to get paid for it. <laughs> and maybe because he has other skills, like he's good at engineering. Maybe if, if Paxman had been able to fix a lift, he'd have never <laughs> had to do things he didn't like for money. There's another podcast, If Paxman Could Have Fixed a Lift. Or, <laughs> or People From One World Fixing Lifts. Lifts. It's, well, it's like my my husband's great idea for, you know, that TV programme where they turn like a bunch of dustbin men into a choir. He was like, what we need to do is the other way around. We need to get a choir and turn them into dustbin men because there's just not enough council workers. One of my heroes in your world is Peter Hennessy, the sort of constitutional baron. And he told me that there's a documented case of two old lords who used to compare government ministers to the most likely person in the civil service that they'd actually be. One government minister from the 60s was compared to a very grumpy lift operator, funnily enough, who just hated operating the lift. So it's actually very, in a way, it's a mini story, isn't it? If your job's to operate the lift and someone gets in and go, can we go to the fifth floor? And you go, oh! <laughs> and that was their way of being a government minister. Not the fifth floor. Not of all the choices. More questions on fish to me? <laughs> that is, I mean, absolutely. You do definitely. There's a lot of government ministers like that. It's like you've been petulant to dare to ask them about the thing that they're responsible for. <laughs> it's like um, you are in charge of crime. And so when crime happens, I might raise it. Sorry to... And then when when anything good happens, they expect a lollipop. Very much like with the social care thing. I find the current social care plans to be dreadful and unfair. But if you raise that they're dreadful and unfair, it's sort of like, well, at least we're doing something. It's like, you are the government. <laughs> you know, what do you want? A sticker. Like, you've been, we've been to the dentist. <laughs> like, uh, a sticker. <laughs> do you want a sticker? Well done. Little gold star. You'll go up the chart. You governed for a day. Congratulations. It is your entire job. It's like teachers being like, well, I've bothered to turn up and teach you the ABCs today. You should be grateful. It's like, that is your job. So just crack on. But yeah, you get a lot of that. Right then. So how would you sign off your letter to Liz, not her real name? I think I'd say, I've written it down, so I know what I'm going to say. You lovely woman. You're strong and a great friend. Make me a pie and see you soon. She sounds lovely, especially good at pie making. She is. She's a businesswoman, but she does make pies that, to die for. Right, so the second letter I have asked you to write is to somebody who is no longer around. So who would you write that letter to? So Michael Wentworth, real name, he, he was my dad's great friend in life. And when my dad died, Michael took me on a bit, taught me to fish. He was a very active person. He rang the local church bells. 
he was on the Town Twinning Association. He made films and he used to send me out to gather sound for the edits. He was fabulous and we used to have long summer evenings as I became a teenager drinking his homemade wine by this overgrown river and he used to stay the night and him and his wife Barbara gave each other nicknames back to what you mentioned earlier. They called each other Bear. I think one was Mummy Bear and one was Daddy Bear. And I thought, wow, is that what people do? And I think there's something very poetic, I think, about a man teaching a boy to fish. He's the son of my old friend. My friend died. I'm going to teach him to fish. I mean, that's kind of classic. It could be a moral play, couldn't it? There's something like the sombre um, nature of tranquility and thoughtfulness of a boy being taught to fish. It's Yeah, I mean, he was a very gentle person and they were very gentle days. It sort of would be a great way to recover from PTSD, which I think perhaps a shocking bereavement is a bit like that. And it, it definitely is. And I had three horrible deaths at once, actually, of which my father was just one. And When you're young and you're drinking wine, you do feel advanced somehow, because, I mean, I know the French do this. I don't mean to encourage that we should make our teenagers drunk, and inevitably your podcast is a space to say what I like. I liked drinking wine at the age of 14 outside and fishing. I liked it very much with a very kind and gentle man. Yeah, I think that drinking wine, if you're a teenager, is like makes you feel grown up and sophisticated as well. My friend's mother told us always to order red wine because we'd get served because no teenager would want to drink red wine unless they were a very sophisticated human being. The idea of a kid being allowed to feel like, you know, be included with the grown ups. That's a lovely and inclusive thing to do. Also, I think what you just said there about being included with the grown-ups, I grew up in the 70s and 80s completely unchallenged by creepy men. I mean, there, there was one creepy celebrity, I think, who tried it on. But I had the attention of strangers and of friends of the family, men, adult men, who were just very kind and good to me and the opposite of the prejudice. And I worry a lot that, that, that those are relationships that would be impossible to form now, that it would be absolute maximum creepy. Yeah, I mean, yeah, because, you know, the, a friend of your father teaching you something, feeding you wine, immediately as somebody who's worked in social care for a long time, you, you know, you can see how the elements of red flags, and that is a terrible tragedy because similarly... Actually, in my childhood, often the people that turned out to be the best people uh, to look after you when things were rough or you needed a bit of help were sort of kindly avuncular. There is no female term of the word avuncular. This is a... I'd like some linguist to come up with one. But there was a lot of avuncular teachers or um, uncles, not your real uncle, like in working class families, like everybody who lives on your street is your uncle. They're often very kindly, gentle men, but yeah, there has been, you know, sort of concerns about, especially with children. But there's no reason why that should cloud good, honest, kind behaviour, that we shouldn't ever allow that to be the outcome of that. There must be ways for intelligent people to safeguard at the same time as being nice and kind. If we encourage young people to be able to speak about the things that happen to them, then that that should be safeguard enough. But yeah, I, I, I mean, I would be horrified. My husband is definitely like every kid in our neighbourhood's favourite individual because he's like a child and will like make electronic skateboards for them to ride on and like let them do whatever they want in the house and things. So like, yeah, I, I hope that that isn't the case and that the, the idea that all men are predatory is just ridiculous. And it's actually, it's very harmful to the, the fight to stop 
predatory men actually is to suggest that people think that all men are predatory and so it's impossible to do anything like that's not helpful actually and so we should never ever think that men can't be brilliant especially with children i can remember right now actually one thing that michael made me do he'd filmed the arrival of the french in this local town and it was silent and he needed to go and get car sound so he sent me out with a recorder to record a car with the engine starting and then it was like magic. He he put it on a piece of tape earlier than when the car arrives in vision. So you hear a car start because the tape's started there. And then in vision, the car then drives in. Now, obviously, the car needs to start its engine before you see it moving. But I didn't know anything to do with that. And so that's an image from Michael that stuck with me for, uh, I don't know, is it 45 years, 40 years? And, it, and then you went on to be a broadcaster. I went on to be a absolutely, yeah. yeah. So I just, I wanted it to be him, really. And I think he, it's an example of what friendship, is, what male friendship is, because his mate was my dad, my dad guy, and he looked after his son. There are loads of men who are great friends to their male friends. And I think, what, what greater act of friendship? Yeah, I don't think we talk about male friendship enough, actually. It's a huge amount written and there's quite a lot of marketing in female friendship and how important women are to each other. And when we talk about male connections, we often talk about it being about power, like, you know, networks of people at golf clubs. And it's sort of always tinged with a slightly like there's something sinister about it. And they're all like jobs for the boys and, and all of the terminology around men bonding with each other and being like genuinely good friends to each other is lost. And so, yeah, I think male friendships are really, really, really important. Going back to what you said about going to New York, I read a report that some of the loneliest people in New York, which is a city full of lonely people, are single, young, single, straight men. What does it mean if you're straight to befriend a guy? What, hello, would you? shall we go and discuss the news together over coffee? <laughs> You know, it's just inevitably... There's that. no obvious conversation. That's why men fall back on football often, because it's like an obvious conversation starter with a bloke stood next to you at a bar, like if the game's on or something. And so that's where that's, I suppose, that stereotype comes from. But you're absolutely right. Like, the ability to make friends in adulthood tends to come from either work or children. So loads of my friends who I'm really good friends with from adulthood is because my children were the same age as their children and we talked at the school gate and then we got to know each other and, and we were, like, going through the same phase of life. But if you don't have that... Well, I mean, recently I got a letter from a guy I'd known since he was 12 who I'd gone to school with. In fact, I pierced his ear on a bus because we decided we're going to a disco that he needed to have a stud in his ear, but he he had the small drawback that he didn't have a pierced ear. So I got a rubber from my pencil case and a safety pin that was, I think, holding up my shirt or my trousers and pierced his ear and poured gin on the, on the wound and shoved the stud in. And that's what you should be doing, kids. And um, <laughs> just while we're doing the, the teenage advice bit, and then, um, I, he wrote me a letter uh, and I saw him because he wrote, again, I mustn't go on about death, but uh, my mum died, he wrote me a letter and he'd met her a lot. So I, he's now 55, I'm 55, but I've known him since he was 12. And he's very good at speaking. So, dear Paddy, I'm very sad. I loved your mum. You must be very sad. Let's meet. In fact, I'm coming to London next week. That's decisive. I like that. It was instructional and decisive. And practical. And I think that's inevitably that's good for people, practical people. And I, there's a streak again in you've made me look at my letters. And there's a, I think I'm someone who clearly 
gets on well with practical people. It's very practical. He, we met, we did, we went and walked my dog two or three days ago. He's a good friend and he, he can write letters and he did. So Michael Wentworth, did he pass away like a long time ago or...? Yeah, and it was that thing where I rang, I sent a Christmas card. He, he ended up living in a care home and his wife had predeceased him. And I sent a letter saying, you know, guess what, Christmas, we must get together. It was returned by the staff saying he'd, he'd, just, he'd just died. But I did keep in touch with him. In fact, he had family living in the States that he put me in touch with when I went to live there. So I, it's not a, I don't feel sad when I, when I think back to him. I feel, I feel very grateful and uh, nostalgic. So how would you sign off your letter to Michael Wentworth? I don't know if you believe that people sort of look down, but I was, there was a bit of me that wrote it to him, but inevitably I'm not sure if I think people look down. So I, I've written, thank you, Michael. I remember your kindness and your long summer evening winds, tight lines. We'll be back for the final letter after a short break. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So the final letter is a letter to somebody who doesn't know the effect that they've had on your life. And so who would that be to? So I've gone for Tom Daly. As I get older, I weep a lot more and I've tried, I I, I made it a, a determined effort not to blub on your podcast. But when Tom Daly won his Olympic gold, I did cry. Me too. Did you? Yeah. It just felt like, I mean... Just like he worked really hard and waited and we'd watched the journey. I, I, I love an arc. 
Well, I think that's what hit it with me. And in a pop psychology way, it's very easy to see why I would like him. And he was growing up, his dad died. He had a hobby which his dad had supported, which he then tried to do. He was bullied. He came out as gay. He was bullied again. And he didn't get his gold. And the people sledged him. Oh, you got a bronze. And then he got married, had a child, and then got a gold. Like, I mean, it's impressive, isn't it? Ark doesn't do it justice. It's sort of absolutely inspiring. The thing is, I don't think I'll ever meet him. I don't, I don't seek celebrities out. I don't look for people. And inevitably, he will never know. But he did inspire me, and he does now. I'm not a naturally pessimistic person. And one of the reasons is when you meet anyone who is 15... They are getting a lot of it right. Obviously, people like me say it's all horrendous and it's all going horribly wrong. But actually, the people do know how to get on. And then the younger sporting side of our country, Marcus Rashford, Emma Raducanu, Tom Daly, and of course, all the footballers who I don't know other than Marcus because I don't really watch football, they do inspire people. And they're only 20 and they, they're, they're winning. They're doing it. They are uplifting people, including dreadful old people like me. I mean, I absolutely, my life was better because he he dived into a pool. I mean, I think also you have to try when the Olympics is on. You have to really commit to not being inspired by it, to not be inspired by it. You have to have gone out of your way to, like, be grumpy about it and that for, to be your thing because it is just so inspiring. I learnt that. You summed that up perfectly for me. I learnt that in 2012 because in the media we spent all our time saying the Olympics was going to be washed up or blown up and then we said that there was a security, the awful, you can't get in, G4S or whatever it was. The army had the to army be brought in. Bring in the army. And then within weeks we're going, oh, isn't it nice to have the army? Those young souls, <laughs> their lovely berries. It's uplifted the nation. It's absolutely, look, I'm uplifted. We're all uplifted. And we did that complete switcheroo in the media. We, we said it was going to be horrendous. We're all fat. There's no point watching. We're going to fall over. We can't win anything. We, all our, our venues, that, no, they're not ready. And then everyone I know, like the cynical old people, were completely boosted. Totally. I like to consider myself quite a lot of a cynic and I have just literally immediately swept away. Like, it takes no, no time whatsoever for me to be... It like I don't like football and I pride myself on being honest about that. I'm not going to do a David Cameron and pretend that I know the difference between West Ham and Aston Villa. I do, of course. I'm from Birmingham. I know the difference. But, like, I'm not going to pretend just because it's popular to say that I like football. The second the Euros started... I was literally, it's like they were my sons, those young men. I was like, that. these are the people. They're going to, the nation is totally behind them. You know, people like, and Tom Daly, especially because he must actually not be that young anymore, but because he started so young, he's going to be forever. He's like Peter Pan, forever 15 years old. Doesn't matter how old he is, he's 15 years old. Also, I mean, I think this bullying thing, we know bullying is growing. Bullies have been really energised by social media. And forgive me, because this is something you know much more about in your life. But we know that bullying's a thing. And we know that Tom Daly beat the bullies. So we need more Tom Daly. And we need to tell people who are bullied that you can beat them. And easily, actually, just by being yourself. That's the most terrific part. If you're a teenager who's bullied and the advice is be yourself, you never know that's the advice. No. Were you bullied when you were a kid then? 
No, I was absolutely protected and adored, but I worry that I remember I worry that I was one of those enablers. I worry that there were people who were bullied and I didn't have the voice to say stop it. There was a guy around us who I remember he stopped a bully very effectively by turning him upside down and flushing his head down the loo. I was involved in in that, but I didn't lead the charge. I was kind of persuaded at the moment of him being bullying this guy that I would assist. But I never led the charge, so that worries me a bit. Wasn't that horrendous, bullying at boarding school? But I have one very close friend who I love very much who went to boarding school, and I cannot believe the stories that he tells me about the kind of, like, people being hung up in sleeping bags and just had balls kicked at them and, like, sort of ritualistic bullying that went on that like you know if you go to an inner city comp you'd literally be kicked out straight away if you undertook that sort of bullying Mm. I mean I know that is really well documented and a lot of those schools are pursued to this day I mean I had a benign time really but inevitably yes young teenagers living together there were things that happened that that shouldn't and, and inevitably there were people who were always seemed vulnerable and inevitably in my considering about why I would pick Tom he must have seemed vulnerable he was in swimming he was diving and you just you don't know what motivates a bully but presumably it's someone who can't swim i mean you know it, perhaps now that's how it starts and also in, because i'm old uh i won't go to older it was incomprehensible really to imagine that i would for instance have children and the other part of the thing that i think i love about that relationship which i look in on is that they are you know they are both very proud to be dads and I can't imagine the impact that has on people growing up wondering what their possibilities are. I think that there has been progress in our country. And again, this links back to the the thing I was sort of hitting at. You know, people like you and a lot of straight people who are in politics have assisted that. That's what a society is. And I don't want to lose sight of that, especially now with all the anger. I feel though I have stood on the shoulders of giants. Yeah, I mean... It is unfathomable to me that somebody like Tom... When I was a kid, that somebody like Tom Daly would be able to talk about being a dad. And now it seems so basic. It seems so regular. We've gone from unfathomable to it being the most basic thing. Like, it's like, oh, yeah, he's he's got a kid. Like, okay, Without question, when we look at all the anger in the country, the country is a progressive country and we shouldn't we shouldn't allow the noise to make us think we don't live in a progressive country we live in a very very progressive country that wants to see further progress you know there's now very very few people in my constituency who would be mean about gay people or like think that Tom Daly wasn't a great bloke for whatever reason whether they knew or not and that's you know it's really heartening yeah, and I think it's really, like, for people like me who who now have a, a really a very charmed life, it's good to remember that I did, didn't feel that way when I was 15, a sort of closeted teenager. And as I've said in my conversation with you, I, I look back at people who really kind of looked after me, gave me safe spaces, we would call them now, but you could call it a pie and a glass of wine in the, in the language of my youth. It's good for me to kind of, if I can be good instead of just selfish, to imagine what the modern version of feeling trapped. And, and I feel very sure that it's like to be late at night, a teenage girl on social media with less likes and less friends and less clothes and less shoes. And I know it sounds superficial and, and I don't, I'm not accusing teenage girls of being superficial, but I feel that 
that loneliness that I, I must have felt, that's accelerated by these technologies. And, and I think that's perhaps the Tom thing, that we need to tell teenage girls they can get through it and teenage boys they can get through it. I just want the success of adulthood to be passed on and growing up successfully is the bad times, but it's you, you know, I feel that's in the mix with Tom. Yeah, yeah, the you, the you. Be, the, the, well, I mean, I suppose you summed it up when you said the greatest weapon is to be yourself and just keep being yourself. And It can't feel like that, can it? When, when you're tormented. You will win. No, it, it, it definitely doesn't. I mean, you've been, and also you, even though you now live a charmed life, you've been self-depreciating throughout the conversation and people are naturally like that. And it is, yeah, it's, it's hard to wave a banner for yourself. That's why you need allies. It's not just because, you know, like political allies or you need progress to be made. Like it's much easier to advocate for somebody else than it is to advocate for yourself. And that's why it, you can feel trapped when you feel alone and you can't tell anyone because you haven't got somebody to advocate for you on your behalf. But like Liz was advocating for you, Michael Wentworth was advocating for you. And in a way, Tom Daly is advocating. He has. And your, your earlier remark about if we could teach children to communicate about what's happening to them, I didn't. You know, I wish you'd been there to tell me that. I, I kept lots of things bottled up, including the, the grief thing and the, the, the sort of was I gay thing, just very bottled up for too long. And the I, that's why I connect with that feeling of late at night looking at the fact that someone has said something horrible about you online. I just, it would that would really have worked to torment me, actually, and we didn't have mm. it. So thank God we didn't Thank have God. It. I thank God every day. That there was no social media when I was a teenager. I can't, I, I mean, it seems un, unbearable, absolutely unbearable. I think it's getting better a little bit. My sons, they're not allowed social media because of my job, but they don't seem particularly tormented by it. But if you're famous and people saying things about you on Twitter, like Tom Daly would have had, I think that, you know, that's harder to, but I, I think my, my kids are less obsessive about it than they were even like five years ago. And so I hope that it is sort of, clawing away but it's really really important to teach young people to bear witness to their experiences even if it seems silly and trivial to bear witness so that they can speak about it because otherwise they'll you know just think they're alone and that's that's the most dangerous time yeah and my friend who's a who's a very thoughtful dad said to me there's this period of their life where teenagers need you but don't want you and I thought that's very well, that's learned the, the hard way, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's difficult. That is, yeah, that is really hard because, like, you know, you're desperately trying to give them guidance and, like, everything you say is, like, it's literally like you're clawing at their skin and that you hate them. And it's like, oh, God, just listen to me. I know what I'm talking about. But then they're also very irritating and think that they invented everything. Sex, drugs, rock and roll. Uh, my son thinks he invented being left wing. Yeah. Which... Uh, with you as his mum. Yeah. <laughs> he genuinely, he will lecture me on capitalism on a, on the regular. Um, I'm like that, oh, Jesus Christ, shut up about bloody capitalism. Is he more left wing than you, do you think? Oh, God. He's like Lenin. <laughs> uh, it's like living with Lenin. Who doesn't have everybody's lending when they don't have to pay for anything? Is what I say to him repeatedly, but um, he doesn't seem to listen. So, how would you sign off your letter to Tom Daly? Tom, you're a dolphin. I'm watching where you're going next. Rather than down with a splash, 
up with a blast. Will he give up now, do you think, Tom Daly? I think, he, you know, maybe that's it for him in the Olympic diving or... Yes, if I was better read, I would know that he's addressed that question. And I think he has, and I can't remember what the uh, the answer was. Listeners can write in. Yes, listeners can write in. I know he's very keen on knitting, and so uh, maybe knitting is next on the list. But, yeah, this, the sky's the limit, Tom Daly. Well, Paddy, it has been a total pleasure listening to your choices and Liz and Michael both sound just like gentle presences of loveliness and obviously Tom Daly is a total inspiring legend so thank you very much for sharing them with us and I hope that you get writing lots of round-robin Christmas letters. Thanks very much. I've been jealous of that I haven't been on your podcast before and it's been eye-opening for me to kind of work out. It's a, it's going to be a culture therapist's dream, Look, joining, the, <laughs> joining the simple dots of my broken existence. <laughs> it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you very much, Jess. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Yours Sincerely with Jess Phillips. If you want to hear more conversations just like this, make sure you follow Yours Sincerely with Jess Phillips on the podcast provider of your choice. And why not write a letter to your friends telling them all about this podcast? And you can also follow us on social media. We're at Jess Phillips Pod. Goodbye. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.